I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fintech Beat. My name is Amaya Scarity, partner at QED Investors, and I'm stepping in for Chris again this week as co-host of the show. The last five years have been a boom time for fintech. There have been hundreds of unicorns, and everywhere you looked, it seemed like someone had made a boatload catching a wave on the hot new investment theme. Now, however, the economy is rapidly changing, with turns in both stock markets, housing, and perhaps even GDP growth that are giving pause to just about everyone. So this is a perfect time to dig into what this means for fintech and for you. We're lucky to be joined today by Brian Barnes, the founder of M1 Finance, an investing platform that combines self-directed investing with automation and a long-term focus. We'll start by getting his perspective on what's going on in markets and what he's hearing, and how M1 is helping their customers make sense of these turbulent times. M1 isn't a household name yet, but it's been an American success story, raising over $300 million, hiring hundreds of employees, and reaching unicorn status. Brian also has an interesting view of fintech and banking. One interesting example of this view is that last year, Brian took the highly unusual step of buying a tiny Minnesota bank to help position himself for the future of finance. So we thought there could be no one better to get a pulse on the economy, financial markets, and why the future of personal finance may be a super app. Brian Barnes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, let's start with what everyone wants to know. What is going on in markets? Your core product started with self-directed investing combined with automation. So what are you hearing from your customers and what's your company doing to help them in these turbulent markets? Yeah, so from a markets perspective, I think it's in the nature of markets to go wildly up, wildly down uh, and you know have short-term movements. But the markets have been the best long-term source of wealth accumulation um, and wealth management over long periods of time. And so, you know, there, there is an aspect of markets tend to go up over time, but they have wild swings in the interim process. I do think that there is a huge difference between trading and investing. They both start with the core principle of buying a stock, buying an ETF or the like, but they do it for very different purposes and it really gets to time horizon. And so from a trading mentality, it's almost you're almost indifferent between what you're buying. You might buy at 10 a.m., sell at 2 p.m., and all you're hoping is there's price movements. When you're investing, you're actually buying equity stakes and ownership stakes in uh, companies and sectors and the like. And so M1 has always been geared much more towards investing, buying things that over time go up in value. The intrinsic value goes up over long periods of time. And so truthfully, from our user base, we haven't seen much of a deviation in behavior, that they're looking at their money at work and they're you know talking about selling it in 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years from now. And so these short-term market movements do not play as much into their psychology. And I think it just changes dramatically based on what type of person you are, what your goal is in whether it's trading or investing and the the platforms that you use. And so, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball of what's happening in the market. It's a, you know, we entered a pandemic pandemic and the market ripped and then we leave a pandemic and it declines. I think that's the the tough thing of investing. I do think 
people who are long-term investors consistently deploy money over long periods of time. Yeah, I remember in the fall of 2008, I was uh, a young consultant and I talked to a partner at my firm and I was like, oh, should I should I sell? You know, what should I do? How should I defend myself in these crazy markets? And and the partner said, look, Amias, you're a young person and you're likely to be a net buyer of stocks over the next 40 years. So you should just relax, save the money that you're going to save and invest it the way you normally would. And I thought that was just great advice, right? This idea of you know, investing is part of a life plan for your financial life, not so much a, a trader's mentality of how to catch the top or catch the bottom. Exactly. We think of financial wellness in a very similar vein to physical health or physical wellness. And it's one of the things of you don't get fit by exercising once really hard. You don't get uh, you know thin or healthy by eating a good meal once. You do it via systematic behaviors employed consistently over incredibly long periods of time. And that's what we encourage for prudent financial management. It's spend less than you make, put the excess in investments, uh, systematically contribute over long periods of time, and take the power of compounding in your favor and just always be invested in things that you know and understand and believe are going to go appreciate in value. But Brian, it can't be that all of your uh, all of your customers are just as unflappable as 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 you are. So are, are you guys getting, you know, folks chatting into to your app, trying to call you? What what are those what are those messages like in these markets and and how are you interacting with your customers? Yeah, so you know, M1 now manages about six and a half billion dollars on behalf of half a million people. And so that's a that's a big enough user base that you're going to have the entire spectrum of people who are calmer than I am to the people who are, you know, freaking out and and you know worried about what what's going to happen with their money. By and large, from a macro perspective, people are upping their deposits, and you know, a, a, a lot of M1 is based on personalization and automation, and so people have recurring deposits every two weeks that drips into their custom soccer ETF portfolio. People are continuing that. Not many people have shut it off. People are bringing things forward. And so they're, you know, instead of planning on contributing X amount in six months, they're doubling the amount and plan on, you know, deploying it in the next three months. And so from a, you know, M1 user base perspective, we see people taking a little bit more of the perspective of buy the dip, as opposed to worried about market fluctuations. So zooming from the kind of M1 consumer now to M1 as a representative of a very exciting fintech environment. What do you see or what do you expect in terms of the feedback loop between what's been happening in the stock market and how that's going to you know, affect the crowning of unicorns or the life of, of these very fast growing uh, fintechs over the next couple of months and years? So I think the there's been a tough theme in fintech over the last few years where most consumer applications outside of finance got big and valuable by having a ton of users. And so that became the notion of how people would value internet startups of how many users do you have? And I think this perverted incentives that a lot of the neobanks, the brokerages, they were so focused on increasing their user count that they would they were more or less collecting email addresses rather than tried and true financial intent with their user base. And so, you know, I, I do view a lot of the firms out there were more focused on financial entertainment, 
getting excitement out of it as opposed to does this replace your core banking account? Does this replace your core brokerage account? And truthfully, you know, I think fintech has a lot of long ways to go before it is an alternative to JP Morgan Chase, before it's an alternative to Charles Schwab. Um, you know, M- M1 has very much been focused on we are not successful unless we are your primary financial institution. And so, you know, we're looking at the person with a quarter million dollars and say, unless you've put 80% of it onto M1, you use us in lieu of those alternative uh, providers, we don't actually have true engagement. And I, I do think in fintech, you've seen a little bit of the reckoning with people who have gone a little thinner and not as deep with their their customer engagement profile that, you know, creating a online piggy bank versus a you know financial institution that replaces the incumbents are just very two different sort of bars that you need to clear. Um, and Brian, you know, as we talked about in the intro, M1 has succeeded in really fantastic ways since, since you founded it about six years ago, but it's still a small company. It's still a startup. So how do you think about the communication? What does it take to build trust when you think about, you know, as you said, M1 becoming the primary financial institution for your customers. Where are you in that journey? And how did you get there? I mean, how was it possible to cross the chasm between, oh, this is a cool fintech, maybe I'll put some dollars here to actually starting to approach being the trusted financial platform for your customers? Yeah. So if you look at all the large trusted financial institutions today, they're decades, if not centuries. And it's something that all of them became large by compounding at high rates over incredibly long periods of time. It has not been this become absolutely massive in two years and then just hold on to your user base for the rest of time. And so, you know, we, we, we look at M1 as a 2020 version of Charles Schwab. Charles Schwab looked at their, you know, Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. Those were the incumbents of the day and said, we can offer better products, better pricing, utilize technology. And in some sense, they got a different demographic at that time, and then they've held on to them for 40, 50, 60 years, uh, you know, as they've compounded into an absolute behemoth of a financial institution. M1 has a very similar perspective of you don't gain trust overnight. You don't gain it by saying, trust me, you gain it by delivering a fantastic user experience over long periods of time. And so people with a quarter million dollars are likely invested elsewhere. They will try out M1 with just a few bucks. And then three months later, try it out with a few more dollars. And then it's really only a long period of time that they are transferring the bulk of their assets from the existing incumbents over to M1. And it really does take that long-term relationship mindset, this, we are managing your finances for years and decades, and that's how you're thinking about it as well. And it is a slower build, but it's just compounding at incredibly for you know, compounding at good rates for long periods of time as opposed to rocketing to success overnight. And what is the core insight? I mean, from the beginning, if you think about Charles Schwab or Vanguard, they really came in and said there's a there's a simpler, different product that that is a lot cheaper. Is it the same insight, just a better product uh, with lower prices? How, how does M1 capture that customer initially? So in a, in a sense, it is somewhat that simple, a better product, better pricing. But the, the nuance is in what we define as better product and better pricing. And so better product for us means personalization and automation. And so we think of it from a first principle standpoint of 
what is the best offering that someone would get from a financial service firm? And that's typically someone working with a private bank or private banker. And you would have one person sort of personalizing the financial plan according to their client, and then having a team in the background automate and optimize their finances according to that unique plan. M1 just tries to digitize that experience and say, this is the best that finance can offer. How can we digitize it, provide it in the palm of your hand and offer it to more people? And so broadly speaking, M1 should almost feel like a mini CFO in your pocket. And that is the better product side of the equation. The other thing that M1 can do is we can offer relationship-based pricing. That M1 is a comprehensive personal finance platform where we offer investing, borrowing, spending, and can really optimize the entire aspect of someone's life. And for that, we can maintain thinner margins on a per product basis, but sufficient margins on the entire relationship. And so it allows us to compete against the point solutions out there and offer a better product at a better price. And it's interesting, M1 is not a registered investment advisor. So even though there is intense personalization, it's still fundamentally self-directed. How do you guide uh, customers through that process? So the, the financial services world is quite large, and you do have different people who have different perspectives as it comes to money. Some people hate it. They don't want to touch it. They want to outsource it completely and truthfully may want white glove services associated with that. And so they will typically go to a wealth manager and you know just hand their money over to this person and say, you do what's best for me. And presumably they also get to play golf with that person. Is that the... They get a nice steak dinner, golf. Yeah. Um, when the markets go down, they get to call in and scream at someone. So you know that that's the service that a wealth manager provides. Right. There are a lot of people who say... I'm interested in finance. It's my money. I've earned it. I have a perspective in what I want to invest in. I have a take on what I think the world is going to look like in the future. And for that, they really just want the best tools available to enact their choice, where previously it, you know, you had to have seven screens up and be a, a day trader. M1 puts a very powerful, robust platform in users' hands where they can enact relatively complex, complex strategies, but they can do it simply. And so we gear much more towards the person who says, I'm a self-directed investor. I have a perspective in where I want my money managed. I want to make choices and I might want education and information, but I am ultimately in the driver's seat as opposed to outsourcing this completely. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I think about the, uh, the gap between intention and action in my own financial life. So I've got Vanguard index funds. Well, I think that I should rebalance those over time, but how often do I actually do it? And I assume that part of what you do with M1 is you allow someone like me to express the intention, but then you do the automation so that you really close that gap between what people want to do with our financial lives and then what they actually can do. Exactly. It's one of the things that if you have to remake the same decision over and over and over again, life just gets in the way. And sometimes you forget, sometimes it's just not worth the time and energy. And that's where a software platform is perfectly suited to take a personalized plan. You can say, here's how I want my money managed. Keep doing this until I tell you differently. And then software does what it does best. It just enacts the same thing over and over and over again. And so the nice software is, never gets bored, Brian. It, it, it does not get bored. Yeah. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't take days off, no vacation. So, you know, it, it's the nice thing is any dollar that comes into your account or the M1 platform 
just gets routed according to that plan that you've already set up. You don't have to think about it. You know the beneficial behaviors are happening in the background of your life, and you can change it at any given time, but it's a, we will automate what your plan is until you decide to change your plan. And people shouldn't be changing their financial plan all that frequently. So shifting gears from this software-based investing to the unusual choice of buying a community bank in order to build the future of finance. Tell us about that theory. Why buy a community bank and why do it personally? So why buy a community bank? Um, Was talking about M1 views itself as a 2020 version of Schwab. Better product, better pricing, better technology, and will compound into a very large financial institution. We think it's very difficult to believe that you become a large financial institution and you're not regulated as one. And so in the investing and borrowing against investment realm, that's broker dealer, that's investment advisor, and we are regulated as such with that. In the deposit realm, the payments realm, the lending realm, that's all regulated by a bank. And so over time, M1 wants to be this vertically integrated, own every the, the technology, the regulatory stack, such that we can customize the experience and really deliver the best value prop to our, our customer. And we're not reliant on external third parties that, that drive our decisions. The reason that I did it personally is really due to how regulations are set up, that it's weirdly easier for an individual to buy a bank than it is for an entity to buy one. And it all has to do with bank holding company rules. And so it was a little bit of an esoteric opportunistic thing that if I bought this bank, I could start investing in the technology to support the M1 products and features. And it really allowed us to deliver more banking experiences early into our evolution than having to do the very large, arduous task of becoming a bank holding company. I often meet founders who like the idea of being a a bank, but relatively few go down that path. I mean, the analogy that I have in my head, Brian, as a, as a parent is it's like the difference between having a nephew or a niece, you know, they're fun to hang out with. You sort of get the feel for they occasionally have tantrums. And then when you actually have a child and you've got to deal with them, you know, whether vomiting at night or waking up in the morning. So how has that been? Is that a good analogy for the difference between, you know, working with a bank partner and actually owning a bank? It probably is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the the level of responsibility and oversight that needed increases dramatically. But I, I do think it's an apt analogy in the other way of you can't say that you want to be a parent and only watch your siblings' kids once every three months. And so, you know, it, it really depends on how committed you are to building a financial institution. And there is an aspect of you know, with with the bad and the, the vomiting at 3 a.m., there's also good that, that comes of it. And you get to sort of experience all the aspects of being a parent. It, it really is the control of your own destiny and the ability to put the things into place that have impact years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we, we think is just very fundamental to what we want the story of M1 to be. And that story, you're talking about it in really long-term uh, view. So let's talk about M1 when it grows up, as it grows up. I often have heard you talk about it in terms of, of a super app. Is that the vision? And how does a super app compare to the vision of becoming this generation's JP Morgan? So I think if you take JP Morgan, they have 
range of offerings from the consumer bank of Chase, and then they have a private client experience for the the wealthy, and then they you know will bank sovereign countries and the like. And so they you know they're they're a huge financial institution, and there really is there is not a financial product that they cannot offer their client and they cannot optimize for their client. I do think J.P. Morgan starts first with a human and then has technology to back it up. And M1's flipping that on the head and saying, the financial firm of the future will be primarily digitally, digital first, and then it will have supplemental humans if something esoteric happens where it's you know sort of outside the confines of what you can reasonably automate or, or handle. And so you know it's it's really, we think in 10, 15 years, the primary way that people will interact with their financial institution is via software application on a phone, on a laptop, whatever it, it, it may be. And you know, then if they have a unique situation, they can talk to a human, but we just are building that foundation layer to be that digital first application and that CFO in your pocket uh, from day one, as opposed to trying to migrate the very retail branch heavy, the human intensive uh, heavy incumbent situation to wh where we think the world is going. Yeah, it's, at some level, it's it's a lot easier said than done to uh, flip from humans first to code first, but, but that therein lies the challenge and the opportunity. So Brian, as we wrap, Six or so years ago, you sat down and thought to yourself, you know what I should do? I should start a fintech. Six years later, that's been fantastically successful. But there are thousands of people across the country who are having that same question, that same conversation with themselves. What do you think about the market right now? Are there fintechs that you think can be uh, started successfully or, or should everyone just come work for, for M1 instead? How, how do you think about uh, starting a fintech these days? So, so selfishly, I think everyone should come work for M1 and you know you use the platform that we have to, you know, sort of accelerate the the future of personal finance. So finance is an evergreen industry. People will need to manage their money now. They will ten years from now. They will fifty years from now. And there are some basic needs that people have across investing, borrowing, spending, insurance. Those needs will never go away. And I do think the optimistic view of the personal finance account is the account in 15 years will be infinitely better than what is being used today. And so in some sense, that needs to get built. That can happen in the confines of a large incumbent, that can happen in the confines of a scaled startup, and that can happen with a net new finance fintech startup. And so it is a there is a massive opportunity to build the finance account of the future. And I do think we are only scratching the surface in terms of what has been done to date. Well, Brian, this has been a terrific conversation. So thanks so much for coming by. And I love the idea that we're only scratching the surface, even in these turbulent times. Yeah, thanks for having me. The difference between trading and investing. That may be something that many in the financial markets lost sight of over the last few years. Even in my day job as a venture investor, it was easy to get distracted by the influx of huge rounds and paper gains. Not all of our listeners may be aware, but despite the long-term nature of venture investments, often five to 10 years, professionals in venture are often measured by our paper gains. And even after a year like 2021, when many successful fintechs were able to IPO, venture investors often weren't able to realize those gains until very recently when those stocks were down significantly from their peaks. 
So Brian's admonition to personal investors that you can't get fit by working out really hard for one day is probably a good reminder for professional investors as well. Building the next great financial services company is a long-term project, no matter how many users sign up for your finance app in the next six months. In the short term, market gyrations will create a lot of anxiety and some real financial losses. But for founders and investors with a long-term plan, Brian reminds us that maybe the real hard part is just sticking to it, investing our time and money in things we believe in. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.